two things. He must believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let me put that in the language that Jesus uses here. If you want to have God reveal himself, you have to start with the premise that he's a revealer. Okay, let's be honest. If there's a God out there that does not want to be found, (laughs) what hope do you have? That's not a good place to begin your search for God is assuming that he's unfindable or unknowable. Jesus is giving us a reminder, a baseline here, where he says the purpose of a light is to give light. The purpose of a lamp lamp is to make known, to reveal. In fact, unless you are physically blind, you cannot be exposed to light without it making its presence known. On a clear day, when you say, where is the sun, you don't have to go looking. You don't have to run mathematics, right? You don't have to, uh, you know, do some sort of experiment to discover. You just look around. If the sun is shining, you can find it. You don't just get its light, you get its presence. It's inherent with light, okay? And Jesus is saying that here, but then he says here, verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. There's an interesting proverb in the book of Proverbs that says, it is the love of God to conceal a matter, and it is the delight of kings to discover it. I love that. Uh, I used to be part of an online puzzle-solving group, and that was my constant status. Okay? It's this idea that God has intentionally laid out discoverable truths. Not blatant and apparent obvious truths, but discoverable truths. In the same way here, he says, basically, that what is now hidden will be made known. Go back to that idea of the kingdom of God. What is now underground, right now, Jesus is Lord of all things. But his lordship is invisible. It's not present. It's not obvious to everyone. However, when Jesus returns, the Bible tells us that all eyes will see. It also tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Jesus is looking forward to here. That's the time of revelation. That's when the curtain is pulled back and everything is on display. But there's a second part of this, a part uh, that gets into uh, a different way to think of this. There's another occasion where Jesus talks about the hidden things becoming manifest and the secret things being shouted from the rooftops. That's not about the hidden God. That's about the things we hide. To kind of stretch Jesus' metaphor here, why would somebody put a lamp under a basket to hide something they don't want seen in the room? You see, here's the thing. It is very easy to say that we want to know that we want to see, that we want light. But the Bible says that this human condition that we find ourselves in, this rebelliousness that we're born into against God, this bent we have towards ourselves and away from God and other people, that it actually makes us at a deeper level not want light because light shows who we really are. 
Remember I told you that John's gospel in his introduction talks about the light and the revealing of Jesus' ministry? He says that it gets rejected, that the people do not receive it. But listen, this is what he says. He says this in John 1, uh, 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming in the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. What's the problem here? Why does it go wrong? He goes on and he explains to us that the men who saw the light of Jesus Christ rejected it because they preferred the darkness. Because they had something to hide. See, if God's word is revealing then it cannot be approached objectively. You can't just lay it before, uh, before yourself and say, let me inspect it. Let me pull out my scalp- scalpel and decide. Let me, um, you know, think through this. Let me play a philo- philosophical game and just play with these ideas. It can't be done. The issue is too high stakes. If this is really the word of God, then it requires a response, and you will be held accountable for what you do with it. You see, if somebody just says, here's how I think the world is, or here's what you should do with your life, to some degree, you can just take that or leave it. You can consider it. You can adopt parts of it and reject others. You can sit on it for the rest of your life and do nothing, and what does it matter? But if the God who made you speaks and says, this is who I am, and this is who you are, and this is what I want want from you, How you respond doesn't just show what is and is not true. That doesn't change at all. But it does show how you respond to that God. It does show how you reply. It does show what's going on in your own heart. Hebrews makes the same claim. It says that the word of God is living and powerful. That it discerns the deep intentions of the heart. Because of our relationship as created beings to creator, when God speaks, it doesn't just show who he is, it shows who we are. What that means practically is that you need to not merely be, especially if you're not a Christian this morning, not merely be skeptical about the Bible. That's fine. Skeptics welcome. All sorts of people in the scripture come not sure they believe in the God of the Bible. God doesn't seem to have any problem with that, but you also need to be skeptical of yourself. If you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, how often does he encourage his audience to count the cost? If Jesus really believes that all salvation hangs on his shoulders, why does he encourage people to sit down and think it through? Why doesn't he tell them to take it for false reasons or just why can't he just get them through the door on false pretenses? It's because a real response requires a real response has to be considered it has to be responded to it has to be submitted to and I know we don't love that word but that's what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord it means you are God and I am not it means you are master and I am not it means you make the rules and I follow them that's what it means and so I would suggest to you here that Jesus is reminding 
that the things we may desire to keep hidden, the things that we want to keep out of you, the things that are really major factors in our decisions to obey or disobey, to believe or unbelieve, the things that cause cognitive dissonance in our life, they won't be hidden forever. Listen, no one will ever stand before Jesus Christ, having heard the word proclaimed of who he was, and be able to say, well, I didn't respond because there wasn't enough evidence. I didn't respond because, because it didn't seem true enough or because it was hard to understand or any of those things. Every time the reason will be found in one human heart. I put my fingers in my ears. I found something else to be more valuable or important. That's why Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That's why he puts the weight there. That's why he puts the emphasis there. Be careful how you hear. Hear intentionally, thoughtfully, with earnest, with self-criticism. In fact, notice Back to back, he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then verse 24, he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. That's where the whole weight of this passage is, isn't it? It's right here at the center. It's the crux. Between these two illustrations of the light and the measure is the command. And the command is for you to watch how you listen. And why? Why is the weight here? One of the reasons I would suggest to you, why, why does Jesus put things in ways that aren't simple but sometimes hard? Okay. To some degree, it's similar to why your algebra teacher didn't just give you the answers but made you solve the problems. Right? Because there's knowing and then there's knowing. Because there's knowing the answer to the test and there's understanding why the answer is true. If God is real, and if God is God, then the Bible constantly reminds us that he is transcendent. That your intelligence should tap out if God is really God. That your ability to understand him should be limited by the fact that you are limited. Okay. And so we struggle sometimes with doctrinal ideas like the Trinity, or like the crucifixion of Jesus, or these types of things, they take time to understand, not because they're untrue, but because they're that true, because they're the fully orbed, real truth of God, and not just a truism that's easy to say and easy to believe because it doesn't really say anything at all. Jesus wants people to invest in the hearing, not just because he's worth knowing. This isn't like some weird dating ploy where a guy sets up these enigmatic clues because he doesn't want to date unintelligent women. God isn't just setting the bar really high and saying, okay, only those who. No, this is the only way to know. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 2. 
the book of Proverbs <coughs> is about wisdom, about knowing how to live rightly. And here in chapter two, a father is exhorting his son to give his life to the pursuit of wisdom. Now, let me explain what wisdom is. Wisdom is living in a way that recognizes the reality, the fully-orbed reality of God. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which means in every decision you make, you make it with the full understanding of the fact that God is and who he is. Okay? To put it really simply, if there really is a God and he is sovereign and he's holding you accountable, to live as if he didn't existed would be unwise. But take that down to every decision you make in your life. What makes it a good or a bad decision? Did you, be, did you include this major variable in your life, the living God? That's the difference, okay? If that's so essential, if that's so important, then why not an instruction manual? Why not everything laid out easy and simple? I think Proverbs 2 gives us the reason. Listen, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise <coughs> your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Do you see all of the way it describes that activity? It's earnest. It's heartfelt. It's blood, sweat, and tears. It involves preparation. In fact, listen, look, look at that preparation with me. You have to make your ear attentive, right? You have to listen. And then it says, inclining your heart, you have to lean in. You have to want to know. And then it says, uh, if you call out for insight, you have to ask. There's a major difference between you trying to discover God or God's will for your life on your own and asking God to speak to you. And then notice the metaphor he, he uses here. He says, if you seek for it like silver. I think all of us would like to find some silver, but for most of us, we just expect to just trip over a quarter in the street, right? But if we're really going to, <coughs> to, to seek silver, we're going to dig we're going to do some demo work. We're going to devote our lives to digging out a mountain, for goodness sakes, right? It's those people that find silver. And it's these ones who find and understand God. And the point here, again, is not merely, although it's absolutely true, that God is so worth the effort. It's that that's actually the way we go about knowing God. In some sense, the finding is the found. In some sense, the searching is the finding. In some sense, it is the endeavor to know God that teaches us who God is. And so there's a preemptive part to this. As we see here, a listening, a desiring, an asking. If you want to know who God is before you open the Bible, before you come to church on Sunday morning. It will be evident. It will be apparent. There is preparation involved. And that's not all. 
Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Now, the author of Hebrews here is contrasting God's incomplete, although true, word in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, with his final revelation in Jesus Christ. And he recognizes that both have been given a word, both have been called to hear, but it's different because one's about Jesus, and Jesus is so much more than Moses, so much more than the ministry of angels, so much more than the sacrifices or the high priest or all these things. And so listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we Christians today, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the revelation of who God is in Jesus, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. He says we must pay attention lest we drift away. Paying attention is something you do after you have the word. It means to hold it in mind, to continue to think on it. It means to memorize it. It means to reflect on it. And that's what Jesus says back in the Gospel of Mark when he says with measures. He says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's Proverbs. You dig at God's word with a spoon, at best you get a spoonful of truth. But you take at it with a shovel, it's going to be measured back to you. However, he says, and still more will be added to you. There's a compound interest to knowing God. It, this is where the mining metaphor breaks down because digging doesn't necessarily lead, yield more and more. In fact, I'm pretty sure mathematically it yields less and less, diminishing returns. But in God's word, the more you understand, the more you're equipped to understand more. Right? That's just how knowledge works. We call it the hermeneutical circle, or I prefer the hermeneutical spiral, which means every time you incorporate something the Bible teaches you, you become a better Bible reader. You're better equipped to understand more of it. Okay? And so there's a higher yield to come, not diminishing returns, but the opposite. He points that out here. But also notice what he says <coughs> in verse 25. For the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And that's a weird thing to say. What do you take from the person who has nothing? But the idea here is if you take what God gives you and you don't use it, you will lose it. That's what the author of Hebrews is warning about. That's why he says we need to consider the word of God lest we drift away. We need to be careful how we hear. We need to hear in a way that incorporates the truth of the word and doesn't just leave it objectively in front of us. This is a scary thing. It means that when we open the word of God, we have to anticipate and plan on being changed. It means we have to take what it says that we find is uh, out of alignment with our lives and realign our lives. It means that we can't be selective with the things that God says and say, these ones resonate with me, so I will keep them. These ones don't, so I will ignore them. And unfortunately, as a pastor, I can tell you with all grieving honesty, when you do that, you eventually lose the things you hold on to. If you let loose any of who God is, eventually you will lose all of it because it's woven together, warp and woof, all included, all, encomp all encompassing, all comprehensive, 
You pull a thread, you unravel it all. And so we need to hear and constantly consider. Maybe it drives you crazy that we do something so banal and so simple as going through the catechism every week. You're like, I've known these things since I was a little kid. Be careful how you hear. Let he who stands take heed lest he fall. And there's another important part of this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends with a bunch of illustrations. His conclusion is all illustrations, and they're all actually about the same thing. There's two trees. There's two paths, broad and narrow. There's two teachers, true and false. And then he finishes, <coughs> and he says, there's two men who built houses. He says, one dug down, laid a foundation, built the house on top of that. The other built his house right on the top of the sand. And when the storms came, the one built without a foundation collapsed and was completely destroyed. But the one who built on a foundation, his house withstood the storm. And then he applies it, and this is how he applies it. He says, the one who's built with a foundation is those who hear my word and do it. Obedience is essential to understanding. Now, <clears throat> that goes against the grain of everything that we think. We want to understand so that obedience is rendered easy. We want to know all the ins and outs and everything up front. We're not happy with the command that God gave Abraham where he said, come out to a land that I will show you. Forsake everything and then I'll show you something better. We want a nice printout of what the real estate's like, what the schools are like. We want to know everything up front and then determine. George MacDonald says, men often seek to understand, they rarely seek to obey. But in the Christian life, obedience is the only means to understanding. I want you to notice that once again, that involves a particular type of hearing. It involves a particular type of response. It involves that when we gather as a church, when the sermon's over, the sermon's not over. It's not over until it's incorporated. It's not over until it's acted upon. And remember, if you don't act upon it, if you don't incorporate it into your life, if you don't seek to do it, it's not just that you'll lose it. It changes the posture of the relationship. I'm going to call it inobedience instead of disobedience. Do you understand what I mean? Disobedience is actively pursuing not doing something. Inobedience is not doing something. Okay. The problem with inobedience is you can't be inobedient to the Lord. You can't be a disciple of the one you chose not to obey. God is so gracious with us that he will not keep throwing things in your inbox if you're not throwing things into your outbox. Because he's not interested in the tasks. God's not going to come to the end of life and go, well, at least you did these ones. He's changing you. 
That's the whole goal, is to make you a different type of person. We need to be careful how we hear. But even there, I want to remind you that it is in obedience that we come to understand who God is. It's in obedience that we learn that he's faithful to his promises. Because why do we disobey a lot of the times? It's because we're afraid God won't show up. Lord, your word says to do this, but if I do this and you don't show up, I'm going to go bankrupt. I'm going to be out on the street. I'm not going to be in a place that's safe. I'm not going to be secure. Unless God is the refuge and the strength that he promises to be. Unless he really is the provider that he promises to be. Another reason is often that we don't believe God is as good as he says he is. We think we know better because the things we want will be better for us. Now, once again, there's an inherent foolishness in the human life that thinks we as broken and finite people knows what be- what's best for us. But oftentimes we are slow to obedience or disobedient or inobedient because we found something more attractive. We think this will really satisfy me. This is sufficient. I don't, we'd never say this, but I don't need God or what he's offering because I already have. But obedience is the way that we come to cherish who God really is. To know that we know that we know that God is worth it. Jesus calls all who follow him to take up their cross and follow him. And Paul picks up on that in Philippians and he says, all the things that I boasted in, all the things that I valued, I've counted as trash in comparison to knowing Christ. But he doesn't stop there. And he says, and knowing him in the fellowship of his suffering that I might partake of the resurrection. He doesn't just recognize the lack of value in the things he's been pursuing. Through the living death of discipleship that Paul has experienced, he's found true life. He's experienced it. He knows that it's true, and so now he can set all that stuff aside and never go back. Hearing here is an essential deal not because those who take the time or put in the effort or the sweat have earned their way into relationship with God. That's not what we're saying this morning. That's not what we're talking about. It's essential because God wants nothing less than all of you. And so this is the only way. I remember hearing a saying once about um, the college classroom being a place where the notes of the professor go from his binder to the binder of the student without passing through the mind of either, right? That's not what God is when he speaks his word. He's not imparting information, he's desiring transformation. And that's not something God can do without us. Because it's us that he wants not our output, not the outcome. It's us that he's changing, not our worldview. 
And so my question this morning is a simple and a pretty obvious one. How's your hearing? I mean this in a limited sense this morning, but it is absolutely true. Your relationship with God right now is exactly where you want it to be. But it doesn't have to stay there. God is not obscure. He's not hidden. He's not hiding. He's not running from you. If anything, we are the runners and God is the one who pursues. And one of the things I love about Jesus is even, <coughs> even with a hard-hearted audience, he never stops speaking. He never leaves himself without a witness. On Sunday nights, we've been studying through the tail end of the history of Israel, First and Second Kings. It's not fun reading. It's rarely encouraging. It's about a stubborn people who are constantly walking away from the God who gave them everything they have. And yet, after page after page after page, you see God deferring consequence. You see God graciously bringing about salvation. You see him raising up another prophet and sending another messenger. God is speaking. That's not bad news even though it's scary that those who don't respond, that's significant. It's good news, God is speaking because he desires to be known. He desires for you to know him. If anything, this should be incentive. There's an occasion where a woman comes to Jesus with an alabaster flask, she breaks it and she pours it out all over her feet and the disciples grumble and they go, what a waste. Jesus has a different perspective. He says, that wasn't a waste at all. He says, in fact, like I'm doing right now, people all over the world are going to talk about what this woman has done. In the same way, any effort you expend to know God will be unwasted. Because God desires to be made known. Because a lamp did not come to be hidden under a bushel, but to give light but we need to recognize that there's darkness in our lives and we need to recognize our strong inclination to keep it that way. And we need to recognize all the other things we pursue and chase. We need to heed, we need to be careful, we need to watch out for how we hear. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son so that you would be knowable, tangible. John tells us in 1 John that he wanted to proclaim what he had seen and heard and even handled with his own hands, God in the flesh. You desire to be made known so much, Lord, that this deafness we have in ourselves called our sin nature 
Jesus didn't come just to speak and push against our deafness, Lord, but to solve it in the crucifixion. Dying the death that we deserve, living the life that we could not live, and then freely offering us the very Spirit of God so that we could understand, so that we could know, so that we could be in relationship with you. The journey we make as Christians to God is a hard one, but it is not a distant one. You've come the distance. You've come and found us. I pray that you would help us here. And if you're not a Christian this morning, understand that God sent Jesus Christ not merely as a teacher, but as a savior. Recognizing our inclinations towards evil, God sent Jesus and he took that evil upon his own shoulders. He wants to wipe the slate clean, but it doesn't end there. He wants to give you more than forgiveness. He wants to change you into his image. He wants to make you holy. He wants to make you righteous. He wants to make you be the child of God that you are potentially in your adoption through Jesus Christ. And if you're not there yet, I just encourage you still to take heed how you hear. And I pray for those who are here, Lord. I ask that you'd help them to see their own hesitancies and hindrances and the things that may block them from understanding the truth if it's true. Make them honest seekers. And for those of us who are Christians, Lord, keep us constant in our seeking. Forgive us for the times where we ask God, where are you, and we leave our Bibles unread. And we remove ourselves from the church where your word is proclaimed. pray, Lord, that you would continue to do this work in us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to look back and see the yield, the harvest after years and years of the word being sown, and that we'd be able to look forward with expectation. If anyone desires to know God, he must know that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let us seek you diligently, expecting to be rewarded, Lord, not with heaven or forgiveness, but with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we respond.